John chapter 8 begins, we're not going to read the whole chapter because it's a long one, but it begins with the story of the woman who was caught in the act of adultery and brought before Jesus. She was dragged into his presence and very uh, unceremoniously put before him and they challenged him and they said the law of Moses says that she should be stoned to death, that she should be executed because she's committed adultery. She was in an immoral relationship outside of marriage. And they said to Jesus, what do you say? And the Bible says that the Lord stooped down and began to almost draw in the dirt of the ground as if he wasn't listening. And they pressed him and he lifted his head and he said, he that is without sin, let him cast the first stone. And then he went back to whatever he was doing on the ground. And one by one, the Bible says that from the oldest to the youngest, they went out. The boldness that they came in with quickly vanished into sheepishness and embarrassment and awkwardness as they realized that they were themselves far from any kind of perfection and they left the presence of the Lord. And then following on from that story, Jesus begins to speak to them about the fact that he is the light. And that if they did not believe on him, that they would all die in their sins. And verse 30, just before where we're going to pick it up, says that as he spoke these words, that many believed on him. And so we pick it up in John chapter 8 and verse 31. And it says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him, If you continue in my word, then are ye my disciples indeed. And you shall know the truth, and the truth shall make you free. And they answered him, we be Abraham's seed, or we're the descendants of Abraham and were never in bondage to any man. How sayest thou, you shall be made free? Jesus answered them, verily, verily, or truly, truly, I say unto you, whosoever committeth sin is the servant of sin. The servant abideth not in the house forever, but the son abideth forever. And if the son therefore shall make you free, you shall be free indeed. And I know that you are Abraham's seed, but you seek to kill me because my word has no place in you. I speak that which I have seen with my father, and you do that which you have seen with your father. They answered and said unto him, Abraham is our father. And Jesus saith unto them, If you were Abraham's children, you would do the works of Abraham. But now you seek to kill me, a man that has told you the truth, which I have heard of God. This did not Abraham. You do the deeds of your father. Then said they to him, we, not, we be not born of fornication, we have one Father, even God. And Jesus said unto them, If God were your Father, you would love me. For I proceeded forth and came from God, neither came I of myself, but he sent me. Why do you not understand my speech, even because you cannot hear my word? You are of your father, the devil, and the lust of your father you will do. He was a murderer from the beginning. And abode not in the truth, because there is no truth in him. When he speaketh a lie, he speaketh of his own, for he is a liar and the father of it. And because I tell you the truth, you believe me not. Amen. Pretty strong passage of scripture. But I want to preach this morning about the truth about lies. The truth about lies. As Jesus began to speak to his audience about being free, They initially understood that from the perspective of being free in the natural realm or in their humanity or because of their natural heritage. They said, we are the children of Abraham. But then Jesus tells them that if we sin, 
we become the servants of sin. And in saying this, Jesus was telling them that the bondage that sin brings into a person's life means that we are not free regardless of our culture or our heritage. So he said, if you're in sin, being a child of Abraham doesn't mean you're free. He then went on to say that he was doing what his father showed him to do and that they were doing what their father showed them to do. The Jews, again, very uh, proudly repeated their connection to Abraham and added, they, they raised the bar a little bit, they actually said, we're children of God as well. God is our father. And Jesus said to them that if you were Abraham's children and God's children, then we would all be on the same page. That's not what he literally said. That's a modern version. He said, you would agree with me, you would love me. And he said, but you cannot, or perhaps we understand that better as they would not, hear his word. And then it got intense. Then it got intense. Jesus told them that they were of their father, the devil. I've never said that to anybody. I hope you haven't as well. But he told them that they were of their father, the devil, and that they did the things that he desired them to do. He said that the devil was a murderer from the beginning and that there was no truth in him at all. He said he is a liar and the father of it. In other words, he is the source of lies. He is the source of dishonesty and half-truths. And Jesus said to them that he told them the truth and they believed him not because they were trusting in another voice. This passage you read, I would encourage you to read the rest of the passage later where Jesus, Jesus emphasizes and reveals to them that he was the same God that Abraham spoke to and later on in John chapter 8. But this passage reveals to us that lies and deception are a part of the identity of the devil. Jesus not only spoke truth, but truth was a part of who he was. John 14, he said, I am the way, the truth, and the life. Truth was simply a part of who he it was part of his identity. And deception is the driving purpose of the devil, to persuade people to believe anything except the truth of God. The devil doesn't really care what you believe as long as you don't believe what God wants you to believe. And if you look around in the world in which we live today, such is the devil's success. And we're not giving him glory or credit in any way, but such is his success with mankind that in our society, the very idea of truth is now being questioned. Whether or not there actually is something that is absolutely true, or whether truth is a relevant, flexible thing where I can have my truth and you can have your truth. Those statements go against the very definition of truth, that we could have our own version of it. That's not exactly what truth means. And, and that's the world in which we live. And the, the enemy through sin and man's corrupt nature has got humanity to question whether anything is really true or it's all just relevant. But the scripture says in the 119th Psalm and the 89th verse, Forever, O Lord, thy word is settled in heaven. God's word is settled, it's established, it doesn't move, it doesn't change, it doesn't adjust to take care of the, the preferences of society, but it is settled in heaven. And if you know your Bibles, you know that the 119th Psalm is the longest chapter in the Bible, and every single verse in that chapter 
speaks about the Word of God, whether it calls it His law, His Word, His precepts, whatever it is, every single verse in that chapter talk to us about the Word of God. Psalm 90 in verse 2 says, Before the mountains were brought forth, or ever thou hadst formed the earth and the world, even from everlasting to everlasting thou art God. The Lord said, I am the Lord, I change not. So real truth, and that's really what it comes down to, Real truth does not change because of environmental factors or because of the changing preferences of society. It is simply truth. Whether you or I choose to believe or not doesn't change its truthfulness. Truth doesn't start to question its identity when we don't believe it. Somebody said that truth is not looking behind it to see who's following. It's just truth. It's just truth. Amen. God's word is true, it's settled forever in heaven. God told Adam and Eve way back in Genesis that if they ate of the fruit, they would die. The devil told Eve that they would not die. And so Eve was deceived, Adam joined in, and guess what? They died. Spiritually, they died then and there. Physically, they began to die over time because God said it and it happened. There's a warning there for us. There's a warning there for us as believers today because Eve knew God. Eve believed in God and yet Eve believed a lie. So we need to be careful that just because we are believers does not mean that we are incapable of believing a lie. Our passage from John chapter 8 began with the statement in verse 31. It says, Then said Jesus to those Jews which believed on him. This is the same crowd that he goes on to tell them that they were the children of the devil and that they were believing the lies of the devil. These, these were people that were believing on him. So you can be a believer in God and still listen to the wrong voices. There's a warning there for us. Multiple times throughout the Scriptures and especially in the New Testament, we are told of, having to, of needing rather to have ears that hear. That, that means listening to what we hear. It doesn't mean we miss the sound. It means having ears that hear. It talks to us about not being dull of hearing. Paul wrote to Timothy and he warned of how there would come a time when there would be people that would have itching ears. They didn't have a medical condition. What it was saying was that they, they, they wanted to listen to things that they liked to hear. Things that, we use an expression, things that tickled their ears. You know, something tickles me, that drives me insane, but... The expression means that it's something that is pleasant to our natural taste. Paul wrote to Timothy and said there would be a time that would come when they would have itching ears and that they would easily be turned away to fables or fiction or things that are made up, things that are not true. Now, sometimes we don't always think of lying as being a terrible thing compared to other sins. Now, if somebody says to you, what's the worst sins? You know, naturally, we'd talk about murder. We'd talk about some of these horrible things that we're not even going to discuss today in this place. But we don't often go, you know, lying's not necessarily at the top of the tree for us. But, but you see, so much of sin, so much of sin is connected to deception, to believing things that are not true, and trusting in myths. Amen. In fact... When we, when we talk about mankind having a sinful nature, one of the examples that we often use, that I use many times when I'm teaching, is that how none of us have ever taught our children how to lie. 
But kids aren't very old before they start to be a little bit elastic with the truth. Nobody sits down with their children when they get to two and say, now this is how you lie, okay? But all children, when they're trying to protect themselves from getting in trouble, will perhaps be a little creative with the facts. Did you do that? No, it wasn't me. And you know that it was them, but they know that they have done something wrong And so lying is one of the first demonstrations of a sinful nature in all of humanity. It has its roots in sin. It was, if you read Acts chapter 5, I believe it is, you'll find that it was lying to God that cost Ananias and Sapphira their lives. In Proverbs chapter 6, a very well-known portion of Scripture, there is a list of things that God hates that are an abomination to Him. And I've got that list on the slide. This is what that list is. A proud look. A lying tongue, hands that shed innocent blood, a heart that deviseth or plans wicked imaginations, feet that are swift in running to mischief, a false witness that speaks lies, and he that sows discord or causes trouble among brethren. When you go through those those seven things, there's a lot of dishonesty and lying and corruption in there. Not everything in there is about lying, but it features there more than you first realize. It's there, there's a lying tongue, there's wicked imaginations, a false witness. Often when people sow discord, there are things that are a little bit elastic with the facts or taken out of context. Amen. Because you see, lies mislead. Lies cause people to go astray. Lies cause people to put their hope in things that fail. Lies break trust. They destroy faith and they devastate hope. The book of Proverbs says that the lying tongue hates those that it afflicts. You don't think of it like that, but when you lie to somebody, it's an act of not caring for that person because you're being deceptive. But Jesus said, you will know the truth and the truth shall make you free. And so my challenge to us this morning is, do you know the truth? What does God say? And I'm not just talking about the fact that here, O Israel, the Lord our God is one Lord. Truth is bigger than who God is. It's a great place to start because you get that right. Everything's connected to that. But truth is bigger than that. Psalm 3, verses 1 to 3. David writing in a very terrible time of his life, a very uh, dangerous time for him physically, a very troublesome time for him emotionally. It says, The Psalm of David when he fled from Absalom his son. Lord, how are they increased that trouble me? Many are they that rise up against me. Now that's bad enough. But then in the next verse it says, Many there be which say of my soul, There is no help for him in God. Selah. But thou, O Lord, art a shield for me, my glory and the lifter of my head. David was in a terrible state. His, his son was leading a rebellion against him to the point that he was going into war against his own father. David was dealing with the the conflicted emotions of the threat to his well-being, but also his love for his son, the guilt that he held on himself because his own sin brought sword, the sword into his family. Going through all of that, and he said, I'm in trouble, Lord. He said, it seems as though everyone and everything is against me. In fact, everybody's saying, there's no hope for me. How'd you like it if everybody you spoke to said, no, you're beyond hope. Even God can't save you. That's what they're saying. There's no hope for me. Even from you, God, there's no hope. But he said, but thou, O Lord. He said, I choose to listen to you. 
and not to them. He said, you will be my shield, my glory, and the lifter of my head. There was voices all around him, but in the midst of all of that, David said, the truth is that you're my shield. Amen. In Jeremiah chapter 17, verses 7 to 9 says, Blessed is the man that trusteth in the Lord and whose hope the Lord is, for he shall be as a tree planted by the waters that spreadeth out her roots by the river and shall not see when heat cometh, but her leaf shall be green, shall not be careful in the year of drought, neither shall cease from yielding fruit. And in the same thinking, the heart is deceitful above all things, desperately wicked. Who can know it? We spoke a couple of Sundays ago about the blessed man. And here he is again. He was in Psalm 1, showing up here again in Jeremiah 17. Amen. The question is, do we trust or listen to God, or do we trust or listen to our hearts? We are emotional creatures. Amen? We are emotional creatures. We, we may not all be as demonstrative with our emotions as others. Some people are calmer on the outside than others. But the reality is we are all emotional creatures. In fact, I'd go as far as to say sometimes the less demonstrative people are the ones who might feel a little bit more deeply. That's just the throwaway. You can do with that what you will. But we are emotional creatures. God made us to have emotions. He has emotions. But he did not make us to be controlled by our emotions. Emotions are a part of living. I read a quote yesterday that I wrote down because I thought it was fantastic. It said, emotions are like children. You cannot lock them in the boot of your car, but you cannot let them drive either. It's about keeping them in the right place. (laughs) You can't shut them out, but if if they run your life, you're in trouble. Amen. And that's how it is. We can have emotions. God doesn't want us to be robots. Emotions are a part of life, love, joy, peace, all these various emotions. Even anger has its place. We can have emotions, but we need to fact check our emotions. You know, when, when, when you see a counselor or you see a psychologist, one of their with all their training and with all their skills and all that stuff, and I'm going to, if there's people here with some of those qualifications, I'm going to be careful. At the root of a lot of it is getting, they want to challenge how you think and what has caused you to begin to think that way. Because what happens is we respond, and this is a very simplified version, so be kind to me, sister lady, but we respond to situations emotionally and then we start to think as a product of those emotions. And we decide that that thinking is fact. When in fact it is not, it is just an emotional response. Amen. So we can have emotions, but we need to fact check our emotions. We dedicated this beautiful baby girl over this morning, so I want to speak for a few minutes about the lies that the devil wants you to believe about your family. Because we are everywhere around us in the media and society, the idea of family is constantly being assaulted. The, the idea that family is even a good thing is being attacked. The idea that there are men, there are women, that there should be mothers, there should be fathers. All of these things are being questioned and assaulted. But all of those things come from God. And the lies that the devil wants us to believe as people of God is that you cannot raise a godly family. That's a lie from the devil. The devil wants you to believe that you cannot be a godly mother or father or wife or husband. That's a lie from the devil. 
The devil wants you to believe that, you know, sometimes we like to believe that we shouldn't have children because the world is so wicked. That's a lie from the devil. The devil wants us to think that your children will walk away from God if you teach them righteousness and holiness. That's a lie from the devil. The devil wants you to believe that as long as you go to church with your family occasionally, that's enough. That's also a lie from the devil. The devil wants you to believe that being fully committed to God and to the house of God will cause your children to hate church. That's a lie from the devil. Exodus chapter 2, very well-known story in the Old Testament. The context is that the Hebrews, the descendants of Jacob who went down to Egypt as a basically a large tribe but have now grown to a nation of people are being enslaved in Egypt. And in Exodus chapter 2, in Exodus chapter 1 rather, it tells us that Pharaoh is concerned about the rate with which the Hebrews are multiplying. And so in an, in an effort, excuse me, to control their population growth, he tells the midwives that when a son is born, they're to kill the son. But the midwives have more respect for God than Pharaoh and God, and God blesses those midwives. And so then Pharaoh takes another step and he says, any baby boy that is born has got to be thrown into the river. He's trying to control population. That is the backdrop for Exodus chapter 2 and verse 1, where it says, there went a man of the house of Levi, took to wife a daughter of Levi. The man's name, if you study, is Amram, and his wife's name is Jochebed. And the woman conceived and bare a son. And when she saw him, that he was a goodly child, she hid him three months. And when she could no longer hide him, she took for him an ark of bulrushes, daubed it, or we would possibly say she brushed it or wiped it with slime and with pitch. She waterproofed it and put the child therein and laid it in the flags by the river's brink. And his sister stood afar off to wit or to know what would be done to him. The daughter of Pharaoh came down to wash herself at the river and her maidens walked along by the river's side. And when she saw the ark among the flags, she sent her maid to fetch it. And when she had opened it, she saw the child and behold, the babe wept. And she had compassion on him and said, this is one of the Hebrews' children. Then said his sister, who happened to just by chance be there, to Pharaoh's daughter, shall I go and call for thee a nurse of the Hebrew women that she may nurse the child for thee? Pharaoh's daughter said to her, Go, and the maid went and called the child's mother. And Pharaoh's daughter said unto her, Take this child away and nurse it for me, and I will give thee thy wages. That's the first ever family tax benefit. And the woman took the child and nursed it. And the child grew, and she brought him unto Pharaoh's daughter, and he became her son. She called his name Moses, and she said, Because I drew him out of the water. Amen. As slaves in Egypt... The Hebrews had no rights. They had no way to appeal to anybody about what was happening to them or around them. Pharaoh's voice was all-consuming. When Pharaoh spoke, it was done. If any of you have suffered through the original Ten Commandments movie with Charlton Heston, which goes for about a week, I think, from memory, every time in the movie that Pharaoh spoke, they said, so let it be written, so let it be done. Some of you don't want to admit that you've watched that, but some of you have. And that's how it was. The, the Hebrews had no, nowhere to appeal. Pharaoh's voice was ruling and ruining their lives. 
But there was a Hebrew couple named Amram and Jochebed that had a son who was a beautiful baby boy, and they managed to hide him for three months. But every parent knows little boys aren't easy to hide. And so in desperation, Jochebed wove a basket and waterproofed it, put her baby son inside that basket and hid him among the bulrushes at the edge of the river, leaving his sister Miriam to watch and see what would happen. And if you read that without really having context, it kind of seems like they just abandoned the child because there's no record here that it says she prayed for God to protect her son. There's no recorded prayer. But in Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 23, it says, By faith Moses, when he was born, was hid three months of his parents because they saw he was a proper child. And they were not afraid of the king's commandment. Moses' mother and father chose to believe in somebody other than Pharaoh. They were not abandoning the child, but they were choosing to trust God to do a miracle in the face of seeming hopelessness. God not only preserved this little boy's life, but he gave him back to his own mother to care for him in his formative years of life. Now, there is nowhere in the scripture that tells us how long Jochebed had Moses before she took him back to Pharaoh's daughter. But however long it was, she poured into that young boy his heritage, who his God was, who his people were. He, even in just, uh, some say it was six, seven years, some say less, some say more, but in the relatively or comparatively short part of this little boy's life, Jochebed and and Amram poured into that little boy, Hero Israel. They poured into that little boy about the God of Abraham, Isaac and Jacob because even after he went back to live in Pharaoh's house, later on in Hebrews chapter 11, in fact, the very next verse, Hebrews chapter 11 and verse 24, it says, By faith Moses, when he was come, come to years, when he grew up, he refused to be called the son of Pharaoh's daughter, choosing rather to suffer affliction with the people of God than to enjoy the pleasures of sin for a season, esteeming the reproach of Christ greater riches than the treasures in Egypt, for he had respect unto the recompense of the reward. He had a promise that he was holding on to. By faith he forsook Egypt, not fearing the wrath of the king. For he endured, he stuck at it because it was as if he could see the invisible God. Such was his faith. This is not just a nice story. This is a principle for us. We, we live in a world where Pharaoh's voice is heard everywhere. It's in social media. It's in mainstream media. It's in our education system. We are surrounded by it. And Pharaoh, if you know the scripture, is a type or a picture of sin and the devil. And Egypt is a type of sin and the world, but family is designed by God. And if he designed it, then he is able to bring it through. If he designed it, that means there is nothing that the pharaohs of this world can bring against God's plan and God's design if we do it God's way. Moses was not just a little boy, he was a type for us. Moses was born into an environment that appeared to be guaranteed destruction. But Moses had godly parents. Moses had an ark, which if you connect that with the story of Noah, 
is a type of the church and Moses had a God. Now let me make something very clear this morning to every parent that's here. Your children will make their own choices. God has given every one of us the power to choose to serve him or not. You cannot force outcomes. Anybody who tells you that if you do A and B that your children must serve God may have good intentions but they do not understand. Because any time that you are able to do something that forces an outcome, you remove somebody's will. But as we prayed for that little girl this morning, our job is to do everything we can to give them the best opportunity to make God choices, to put into them the principles of God's Word, the commandments of God's Word, the righteousness and the holiness of God's Word. And so our responsibility as parents and families to saturate our children with prayer and with the Word of God. It is to raise them in and around the family of God. It is to put our confidence, our trust, and our hope in Jesus. The devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. Amen. Pharaoh said the child must die. His parents said God can preserve him. This world says that church is out of date and serving God is not relevant. The Lord says he's eternal from everlasting to everlasting. The devil is a liar. Amen. You can raise godly children. We cannot, I'd love to be able to say here's a watertight guarantee that your children will never walk away from God. I cannot give you that guarantee. But the Bible says that he will not leave us. He will not forsake us. And that if we put these things in their hearts, that they will never be able to shake them. They may not always obey them, but they will never be able to shake them. You know, sometimes in church you hear it taught that the order of priority in our lives is God first, then family, and then church. And I understand the thinking behind this. The idea is that we shouldn't neglect our children because of what we do in the kingdom of God. But I don't agree with that fact that order i believe the right understanding is that they actually all go together your relationship with god is not separate from your family it's a part of your family part of walking with god is how we care for our family if we're not caring for our family because we think we're serving god then we misunderstand what serving god means amen it's not family over here and god over here they go together And if you neglect your family to serve God, then your understanding of your relationship with God is flawed. If your family is separated from your involvement and commitment to the house of the Lord, then you're doing it wrong. (laughs) If they're left out of all of that, then you're doing it wrong. Serving God and being a part of His church is something that our whole family is involved in. They're not in separate boxes we should love god we should love our families we should love god's family we should pour that into our children and give them the best opportunity to choose not to be the son of pharaoh's daughter now i I don't know how old moses was but let's for argument's sake let's say he was six six years was all his mom had he left egypt when he was what about 40 years of age so for more than 30 years he was in pharaoh's palace But in his formative years, Jochebed put something in him that even as he grew up learning 
to eat Egyptian, to speak Egyptian, to act, to dress, to look Egyptian. There was something in that boy that knew who he was and knew who the God of his people were. Amen. The devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. And I want to put the church on notice this morning. Just because you believe in God, make sure you don't listen to his other lies. You can be victorious. You can be delivered. You can be healed. You can be saved. You can live for God. You can be an overcomer. You can raise your children in the fear and the love of God and see them be victorious. The devil is a liar. And the father of it, everything, if he tells you something, you need to assume it's a lie. Because it is. Every promise he's ever made has failed. Every time sin entices us and and says, if you will do this, you will feel like this. You will be popular. You will do this. It all turns out to be a lie. Whatever God says is true. When God makes a promise, he keeps his promise. The ones we like and the ones we don't like. He promised Adam and Eve, you eat that fruit, you'll die. He kept his promise. But then in the next chapter, he gave them another promise that the seed of the woman would bruise the serpent's head, that we would have a Messiah, that we would have a Savior, that we would have somebody that we could put our hope in. The devil gets in our heads and tells us that we can't change, that we're stuck in this particular pattern, that our addiction will never let us go, that we will never shake our depression, that will always be a failure. That is a lie from the devil. This is one of the reasons why we keep repeatedly saying, know the word of God. Know the word of God. Take the word of God and put it into your minds and listen to what it says. Not what society says. Not what the world says. The devil is a liar. The church is growing. The church will be victorious. The church, the gospel is still the only answer to the needs of men and women's hearts today. It is not things. I was thinking about this the other day. And again, I'm wading into an area without qualifications. You sort of do that sometimes when you're preaching. Where in the world do we have the most material things? The Western world. Okay, Anywhere we think about, the anywhere we call first world countries have the most money, the most comforts, the most of the good things of life. Where in the world is there a greater problem with mental illness than anywhere else? The devil is a liar. Lay treasures up in heaven where neither moth nor rust does corrupt. Everything that this world promises you is a lie. I'm not saying you shouldn't have a nice home and a nice car and a good job. I'm not, the Bible tells us we have to work. Some of you need to work more, some of you need to work less, but that's between you and the Lord. But the promises of society and the material things of this world do not bring, you know, if, if I could just get that job, I'll be happy. You know, if we could just move into this house, we'd find contentment. If I could get my kids into this school, if I could get this promotion, if, if I could, you know change the way I present myself, my appearance, if I could have better friends, if, if I could get involved in this, then I would be popular. All of those things are a grasp for the things that only God delivers. Romans fourteen seventeen. it's not on my slides. The kingdom of heaven is, kingdom of God, kingdom of heaven, one of those two, is not meat and drink. In other words, it's not just keeping a list of laws, but it's righteousness, 
peace and joy in the Holy Ghost. You know, as a kid growing up in church, when people used to talk about the peace of God, when you're a kid, peace is not particularly attractive. It's like, you know, big deal. What's peace? You know, we think, you know, nobody's at war. Great. But when, as you begin to get older and you begin to understand the chaos in the world and the devastation of sin, broken homes, broken nations, broken hearts, broken minds, broken lives, peace takes on a whole new value. And when you begin to do what God says, you see, I was listening to somebody preaching that there is a process there. Righteousness. Doing what's right leads to peace. These are fruit, peace and joy are fruit of the Spirit. When we do what is right, when we're filled with the Spirit, when we walk with God, it will produce those fruit in our lives and it will give us the things that God promised that we could have. The devil is always whispering, whispering. I was talking to somebody just the other day, talking to a young person. They were talking about when they went to nightclubs, and I'm not endorsing that by any stretch. If you've never been to a nightclub, stay like that. It's not worth the trip. But they were saying how that when you're in a nightclub, unless you're participating in all the things that are going on, you know, the drinking and all the other crazy stuff that goes, it's, it's, it's actually quite boring. And it's actually weird. You can't really, you know, you, you know. It's like if you've been around people that are drunk that are talking to each other and you're sober, it's like none of this makes any sense. But they seem to be having a great old time, but you haven't got a clue what's going on. And they were talking about, about how that's what a nightclub environment is like, where unless you're involved, it, it doesn't make sense. You, you don't understand what's going on. It's actually not interesting at all. And I said, you know, being in church is exactly the same. You're just sitting back and watching. Church is weird. Let's be honest, if you're not involved and you're watching people lift their hands and sing and clap and get excited, maybe cry and shout a little bit, think, what is wrong with these people? It's kind of weird to sit back and watch, but if you participate, everything changes. If you begin to say, hey, well, maybe I'll try this worship thing a little bit. Maybe I'll, I'll respond to what I'm feeling here. Things change. They go from being boring to being amazing. And if you think church is boring this morning, I would challenge your level of participation. Because when you begin to get involved with the power of God, it is anything but boring. Amen. The love, the joy, the peace that only God can bring. And this morning, if you're listening to things that aren't true, the devil is a liar. The devil is a liar. He is the father of it. Everything, every time he opens his mouth. You know that saying, how do you know when someone's lying? When their lips are moving? Every time he opens his mouth, he lies. And so you need to dismiss it and say the word of God says. You need to know who Jesus is. But you need to know a whole lot more than that. You need to know who Jesus says that you are. That's not about saying, man, I'm awesome. It's so amazing who I am. I'm so good it's hard to believe. That's not what it's talking about. It's about I am a child of God. I'm washed in His blood. I'm filled with His Spirit. I have promises that this world cannot take from me. It does not matter how hard it gets, He's going to bring me through. It doesn't matter how ugly it gets out there. He is my hope. The devil is a liar. Stand with me if you would this morning. If you're standing here this morning and you've got something going on in your life, 
that you want to change, but you've become convinced it's impossible. That's a lie. If you've got something going on and you think, Lord, there's no way out of this. David said, everybody around me is all telling me that I've got no hope, not even from you, God. What an awesome thing to say to somebody, not even God can help you. God, ta- you know, God takes that as a challenge. God sort of says, watch and learn. So if you're believing a lie this morning, the devil is a liar. This is the truth. He loves you. He loves you. I want you to turn to your neighbor and tell them that God loves them. Now face that same neighbor and say, he loves me too. That's the harder part. (laughs) It's real easy to believe God's love for somebody else. Because other people are nice, but us, yeah, we know us. We know us. Bless the Lord. Amen. Amen. Let's just lift our hands for a moment. Just feel the Holy Ghost in this place.